Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. So today I am welcoming Dr. Carrie Yizad. She is a qualitative researcher, cultural critic, and three times best-selling author. She is the founder of I Think Change, a research consulting agency that helps businesses to determine what's working, what isn't working, and how they can facilitate change using data analysis. She is best known for sharing the untold stories of Black women in corporate America. Dr. Yazid is a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Inc., part of the Divine Nine, which I am as well, um, but I am part of AKA, and she resides in South Louisiana. And so I would love for each of you to, in your own way, welcome Dr. Carrie as our guest co-host, either through your emojis, your expressions in the chat. Let her know that we are so appreciative of her spending time with us today, and I am actually going to spotlight her so that she can greet you all in her own way. And Dr. Carey, I did prepare you. I said that once I read your bio, we'll all know your accolades, your credentials, but I also wanted to give you an opportunity to share with this audience whatever type of greeting, but important information that we also love to hear from our guest co-hosts or some of those additional fun facts or tidbits of information that we can't find in your bio that just really helps us to learn a little bit more about you. So Dr. Carey, welcome. Um. Thank you. Thank you for that great introduction. I always say when I hear my introductions, I'm usually going like, oh, wow, who's that person? And then I realize, oh, wait, this is you. This is your interview. So, um, you know, sometimes I think we don't realize the accomplishments that we've made until we hear them, you know, said back to us. So for that, um, I am very grateful for the reminder of um, all that I've accomplished, because one of the things we know as Black women, we tend to, um, you know, kind of suppress what we've done, yeah. um, and we're very humble. And so sometimes we need to be reminded, like, just how great we are and, you know, that we have been trailblazers and some of the things that we have done. So thank you for that. Um, I am a native of South Louisiana, so you probably hear a twang in my voice. <laughs> I have two young adult sons, I'm a single parent, and I have three fur babies, so... <laughs> Oh, um, we love yes. the fur babies, don't we? Yes. No, we have to always get the fur babies in. Sometimes they get left out, they get excluded, but no, fur babies are important. So thank you. <laughs> yes, definitely have to acknowledge the fur babies that are actually yeah. sitting here for the interview. So <laughs> they're in the office with me. So yes. Um, and um, I have, I've authored, I'm actually, I'm on my ninth book. So I have been doing this for since like 2006, 2007 former college professor, um, taught research for 11 years and was a um, clinical social worker for 23 years. Fantastic. Lots and lots of experience. And so I know this conversation is going to be incredibly rich. And so let's just jump right in. Yes. Let's with you sharing with us what your journey has been into this DEI space. So give us a little bit of background as to why you felt connected and drawn to this work, what really led to you um, writing your books and just deciding that you wanted to really amplify um, the voice of equity and inclusion, and specifically for women of color in corporate America. Um, sure. I will say this, that um, I actually, my background is as a clinical social worker. So I did that for 23 years. And in that field, 
it is not acknowledged. It's not called DEI. You're out there and you're just helping people that are in need. For me, those people in need always looked like me. Um, the communities that I served were actually communities that I grew up in. So I, uh, I usually knew the families in some shape, form or fashion. And it was helping them to navigate systems that back then it wasn't called systemic racism, but it was, OK, we need to learn how to navigate the systems that these whites have created that are keeping you from accessing the resources that you need to survive that you are also entitled to. A lot of it was working as an advocate. Mm -hmm. So helping them to understand the systems and then sometimes having to take a step back and saying, OK, I've given you the tools that you need. Now, this is what you do. You go in and you advocate for yourself. And so mm -hmm. teaching them how to become self-sufficient in spaces and how to move in spaces that they probably otherwise wouldn't have been comfortable in. And so during those 23 years, I never looked at what I was doing as a form of DEI. I just looked at it as I'm a social worker. This is what I do. And then as a college professor preparing African-American students to go into the field again and to practice as social workers to do mm -hmm. what I had done all those years. And then we had the summer of 2020 where everyone had a racial reawakening and mm -hmm. the focus all of a sudden became on the oppression of Blacks. And yes. I don't think it was really a racial reawakening for Blacks because we knew what we had been going through. Sure. You know, I, at least I knew I had, you know. Sure. <laughs> And, but everyone was at home. And so now things intensified. And I saw how people were struggling in these spaces and how to navigate and how to express themselves. And at that time, I had transitioned into business coaching. And so my clientele were, were Black women who were starting small businesses who had left corporate America. But I really didn't know their stories as to why they had left corporate America. My job was just to help them to start this great idea that they have and turn it into a thriving business. And when we had the, the killing of George Floyd, I shared my story on LinkedIn of what I had gone through in corporate America and like the feelings that I was experiencing at that time. And I remember I walked away from my phone, from my computer came back the next day and it was like I had a flood of DMs and and people were just women were sharing like their stories and they said that because I had shared I gave them permission to share and some of them were women that I had worked with and then I began to see why they left corporate America um and it, it really started to make sense and so for me, I was like, okay, so what am I supposed to do with all these stories? Like, this is a lot of women who all have similar issues as to why they left or why they want to leave. And at that time, I had, I think I was on book like five or six that I had published. And I said, well, I have a platform. I know how to self-publish. I know how to get a book out in a record amount of time. I'll just give them the space to share their stories. And then it's documented. And that's kind of the researcher in me too. And so from there, 20 women came together and we created that first anthology, which was Shut Them Down, Black, Black Women, Racism in Corporate America. And um, 
it was eye-opening a lot because what we discovered was that they were giving other Black women permission to speak up about what they were going through in corporate America. Mm-hmm. And what we started to realize was that we were trailblazers and we had opened the door and said, it's okay to start talking about these things. Mm-hmm. We no longer have to suffer in silence. And that was the common denominator that they all had been suffering in silence. And that is when I think the light bulb came on for me was that there needed to be some advocacy around work culture, especially when it comes to minorities in those spaces who don't have a voice and showing them how to have a voice, letting them know that the things that they have gone through, um, some of it is trauma. And we have just done a good job over the years of suppressing that trauma. So Mm -hmm. for me, I think it started that shift in my career and my path started in 2020. I love that. There's so much of what you shared, Dr. Carey, that it just is deserving of, of amplification. Um, the first thing I'll say is we have one of our uh, our colleagues, our interns um, with NWC, Shaniqua Bigelow, that's on today, and she's in social work. So I'm sure she's soaking all of this up. Um, but I love the fact that you were making that connection point to the advocacy and the allyship that happens and how it is directly related to the work of um, those professionals who serve in that, in that industry and in that discipline. Um, the other thing, too, that I'm so appreciative of is you, among many others that are now a part of this really strong and intentional movement to help amplify the needs of the most marginalized, which again, I will go down in history saying right now it is absolutely the Black woman and specifically the Black woman in corporate America. So I love that there's a lot of different outlets to inspire people also sharing their stories, raising their hand and saying, I've been where you are. Um, I think that it is is producing this um, groundswell of of support for each other within that community, but also it's it's a heightened appetite for the awareness and the need to do something. So thank you so much for, for, for your work. Um, I want to talk about the uh, a recent um, post. It was actually a few months ago. It was a blog that you wrote, and and I'll preface this by saying that this is this is not to negate you know some of the work of Brene Brown because I do think that she has some some strong work that she has produced. Um, but there was a critical analysis of Brene Brown that you wrote about. So can you tell us what you learned from the experience and the research you were doing and the writing that you were doing around that very specific topic and how that parallels with how Black and women are treated in America. And so the critical analysis that I did basically came from the work that I have been doing. And so Brene Brown is known for vulnerability and courage culture. Mm -hmm. And I don't I don't dispute those two entities separate nor together. But I think where she fails is that there is a lack of research when it comes to black and brown women in those same spaces. And that it's easy to tell, to generally tell people to lean in, to take off your armor, to be vulnerable, to be courageous in spaces where you are being challenged. But what I have found through both my personal experiences of being a Black woman in corporate America, but of those of the women that I have worked with 
through the anthologies and collecting their stories and for doing research for tech companies and major corporations has been that they don't have those safe spaces. And when they decide to take off their armor at work and tell Mm -hmm. you what they are going through and how it is making them feel that instead of corporate America embracing them, they suddenly find themselves being labeled as they are aggressive, that you are a team, you aren't, you are not a team player, that um, I feel threatened by you just because you are expressing yourself. And so what we tend to do instead of opening up and leaning in and being vulnerable and courageous in those spaces as Brene Brown teaches, we find ourselves being closed off because that's not a safe space for us. And so I wanted people to understand that it is a privilege to be able to lean in and to open up and to share a part of yourself and what you are going through in the workspace, that is a privilege that all of us are not entitled to. And that when we do open up, because I have, I ha- we get to that point where it's just like enough is enough. So that's when we decide we're going to like, I'm just going to be courageous and tell y'all what's going on. I don't know if it's going to be vulnerable. <laughs> I was escorted out the building by the police. Like, you know, you get a pink slip, you get a severance package. And so it doesn't work the same for us. And I wanted people to see that, yes, Brene Brown is a phenomenal writer. She's a, she's a qualitative researcher. She's also a social worker. Her background is in social work as well. Because a lot of people get her confused as being a psychologist, and she's not. Mm-hmm. She's a social worker. But Her research, when you look at the participants, they're white. Yeah. And now she's starting to share that a small percentage have been Hispanic and Black, but it's a Mm -hmm. small percentage. And so when you look at that in terms of research, that still does not give you the clear picture of what is taking place with Blacks within those spaces. And so I'm coming in and I'm closing that gap because that's what you do as a researcher. When you see a problem, Mm -hmm. when you see a gap, you go in and you fill it. And so I'm giving voice to the voiceless. And so there were some people that had problems with my critical analysis. And that's okay. It's I'm not for everybody. Brene, Brene Brown is not for everyone. That's that's perfectly okay. There's room for all of us to have a voice in this space. Absolutely. I so appreciate that. And I think what's, you know, kind of alarming to myself and maybe others as well that's kind of maybe hearing this information is that when you think about research and the fact that research produces information that then informs so much of how in which we navigate the world, when women of color are left out, when Black women are left out, um, that certainly is harmful in so many regards. And so I appreciate, again, the amplification of of bringing this to the fore. Um, I'm sure that was um, very courageous on your part, you know, maybe in some regards, because, you know, there's a lot of people that are that are fanfares of um, of Brene Brown. And again, not to say she doesn't do good work, but yeah, there was a gap there. And so I, I appreciate you you taking you taking that stand. So I want to talk about ways in which um, black and brown women um, 
you know, force organizations and individuals to pay the compensation that they deserve. And maybe for their intellectual property, we're seeing a lot of that where people's Black women's work is kind of being stolen, they're not being credited for it. But even, you know, the stats that have been, you know, circulating during throughout this week, as we've recognized, um, you know, the the inequity that happens with Black women's pay. What are, what are some of the ways in which you advise you know, Black and Brown women to make sure that they're protecting themselves and they're advocating for themselves? I think one thing is that we need to have conversations about pay amongst ourselves. Like we need to talk about what we're getting with certain corporations, what they pay, you know, what did you get? What did you get? Because there is a big discrepancy. I think we also need to know our worth. And so sometimes that means you need to find out what your white counterparts are also being paid as as well. Um, And speaking of, and and and, yeah. and being able to say I'm an expert. Here are my credentials. This is my rate. And and being okay walking away when they refuse to pay you what you're worth. Like sometimes it's a non-negotiable. And right. I just had a conversation with a colleague. Um, we've been we've been associated through social media for like at least seven years, and just met recently this week. And we were having a conversation about consulting contracts with major companies and what we have to go through in order to get a contract or to get paid and how it looks different when we're dealing with someone in leadership who looks like us, where it's right. the, the process is a whole lot easier versus when we are having to deal with a white male or a white female in corporate America and how we have to prove ourselves, even though they have our resume, they have our LinkedIn profile, they have to do an interview with us, they have to interview our team, then we have to sit down and meet with their entire team. And then instead of them talking to you about the proposal that you submitted, you find yourself being gaslighted. So it's a, a 30 minutes to an hour meeting of being gaslighted and picked apart. And then you're told no. And you find yeah. out that it was given to someone who doesn't look like you. The contract was given to someone else and you were used to check a box. Mm-hmm. And as a black woman who does what I do and my team of researchers are all black women, we check two boxes. We're a double minority. We're women right. and we're black. And so we check the box of, well, at least we're trying to do business with more women and more Blacks. We check those boxes, but we don't get the contracts. That's what we're finding. Yeah, no, absolutely. That is real talk. And um, I, I have experienced it myself. And so you're, you're definitely bringing some truth to this conversation. Um, I want to amplify some of what's happening in the chat right now. Andrea Payne is saying, it's so important to connect with white accomplices, you know, and allies to learn about what pay transparency and process look like for them in comparison to what we are offered as black and brown women and are made to feel as though our ask is too high. So recently we saw where California released information regarding the requirement of transparency around um, salary, you know, and I think that's a big win. I think that's a huge step. I am um, interested to see how quickly other states maybe follow suit. What are your thoughts? about that move that California made? 
I think more states need to move in that direction. I see California as being a very progressive state. Um, and I see them like they're not just all talk. They're actually backing it up. And if you had to look at a state that is really trying to make an impact when it comes to, you know, unequal pay and, you know, closing the wealth gap, California is definitely that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, California is definitely that state. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, intellectual property and how that is also a big challenge for a lot of um, um, black and brown women. Um, and, you know, one of the questions that comes up for me is, you know, yes, we certainly can enter into negotiations to where pay is then offered for our intellectual property. But my question for you, Dr. Carey, is, is payment and recognition enough for intellectual property? And what's the alternative if it's not pay? Well, I will say this. If it's, <laughs> if you're not going to pay me for using my intellectual property, at least cite me. At of least yeah. at least direct people to the source of your information. Since the Brene Brown article has gone viral, and I've had it happen in the past, but it was subtle, you know, sitting in a <laughs> workshop and you're just like, oh, that really sounds like something that I, know, I did. I and I think yes. you were in the audience when I did it. OK, um, but like the digital age has made it so easy for people to, as I say, borrow your work like a cup of sugar with no intentions of ever returning it. And yeah. so I'm like, if you're going to borrow it, at least cite me. If you know yeah. that that's I ask of that is that you cite me because then people who read it know the source and they yes. can come back to me and gain other information. But when you lift someone's information and then you spin it as if it is your own and you don't look like me. So then that means you're walking into rooms and you're pretending to know this information, but it's only on a surface level. So you can't go deep and you can't break apart what I was thinking when I wrote that piece of intellectual property. But th right. there are people I have heard of people who have taken my Brene Brown article lifted parts of it as their own. They have done, created training programs for universities. They have had speaking engagements. They've done consulting for major corporations. And I'm just trying to figure out at what point did these people not realize that these individuals were not the expert in this topic? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. That's so good. And we need to all continue to keep amplifying that those citations are critical. And this does happen far too often as has been expressed into, into the chat. So I want to talk about your new book, um, your new book of, of many books. I think you quoted nine that you shared with us that you have um, produced. And so that is, that is quite an accomplishment, but um, your latest book, if I'm not mistaken, is called Unbreak My Soul, How Black Women Can Begin to Heal from workplace trauma. So what do you want black and brown women to take away from your book? That's the first question. And the second question is, I'm a firm believer that just because the book is focused on a certain population does not mean that it's not for others outside of that, those identity groups. And so the follow-up question to that is, what do you want white men, white women to know about what, a, how much of a resource this book can be to them? So let's start there. So for me, the book is written, um, it's divided into three parts. And so first, the first part actually lays out what is 
trauma that takes place in the workplace and that anyone can go through these traumas. So they're not just limited to black women. The book is specific to black women because I need us to understand that we have a compound effect when it comes to trauma, because not only do we deal with the trauma in the workplace, but then when we walk outside our front door, we're dealing with systemic racism. We're right. dealing with the, the gist of living while black. Whatever you do, there's a chance that you're going to be discriminated against, that you're going to be harassed, that you're going to be bullied outside of the workplace. And so understanding that also we have the generational effects of slavery that has happened. And so we have to remember there weren't therapists back then when they let the slaves go and said, oh, y'all are going to be free. No one was there to say, hey, well, let's talk about the trauma you all have went through for the last 400 years. Let's have a conversation. That didn't happen. And it has been passed down from generation to generation. So when you're feeling the feelings that you have in the workplace, understand that you're a little different because you're bringing some extra baggage to the table that probably hasn't been resolved. And so where's the source of some of your anger and your frustration? Um, and moving from there, helping them to start to see what are their traumas. And that's part two of them going through the exercises to, to pick apart their work day. And then the third part is actually a work journal, because a lot of times we go to work, we go through the motions, but we don't document the experiences. And so mm -hmm. then when something really bad happens and we find ourselves in front of the EEOC or in front of an employment lawyer, we yeah. don't have dates, we don't have times, we don't have specific people. And so mm -hmm. this is a way for those women to go and track what is taking place within a 30-day time period. And they can make copies of the, of the diary pages so that if they need to use it after that, they can. For those who aren't Black women, who have purchased copies of the book because I have had a lot of white men and women to purchase copies. And they, their response to me was that they wanted to give them to colleagues that they knew were struggling. They wanted to give a copy to a friend. And for them, this was their way of saying, I see you. I'm trying to understand what you're going through. I don't. But this lady right here wrote this book and I'm hoping this can help you. And so let's start here. And so if nothing else, even if you're not that Black woman, you know a Black woman who is going through it in the workplace, who she is depressed, she's tired, she's frustrated, she's ready to give up, then that's a great resource that you can put in her hands and say, I, you know, hey, I'm not Black. But girlfriend, I heard this book might at least give you some, some answers or point you in the right direction. I think if they sit down and read it, it also starts to give you a clear picture of what we go through and the extra amount of, of pressure that a Black woman has on her when she wakes up every morning. That is not just about work and home, that we have some other issues that we're having to deal with in regards to society and what we see on social media, in the news, what we see when we're riding down the street and see someone being pulled over that looks like us. For me, as a Black mom, I have two African-American sons. So every day until they make it home, there's also that fear that 
I hope they're okay. I hope they don't get pulled over. They have been pulled over. I've had to go to the scene and stop some woman who's screaming and hollering because my son hit the back of her car and, and de-escalate the situation before the police arrived. Like, it's real. It's serious. And so imagine doing all of that mentally, the mental gymnastics, and then having to go to work and play mental gymnastics, because now you're supposed to be the face for this DEI push that all of these companies are having, but they're not putting in the resources. They're not giving people personnel or financial help to be the face of DEI. You're just supposed to do it. There's a lot of pressure when it comes to being a professional Black woman in 2022. 100%. 100%. It's actually an understatement to say a lot of pressure. I'm not even sure what the words are that really could adequately express what, what happens internally for, for, for women that are, are navigating those complexities. Um, Kwabana placed into the chat, the curse of being strong, you no longer receive empathy and sympathy. And that's so true. Um, it reminds me of, and I'm, I'm navigating towards now a conversation of healing. What can black and brown women do to kind of heal from this trauma? And I want to get your thoughts, Dr. Carey, because I find that we are amplifying a lot of these true stories, these horrific stories of all of these traumatizing events. And, um, and I think that's important because it helps to, again, create this sense of community. You're not alone and to bring attention to this, um, the severity of this, of this problem that continues to occur for so many people. But I'm also, um, I'm also curious about how much, what is the need for us to balance that with stories of resilience and overcoming so that for those who are going through, they can also hear those uplifting stories and, and really be um, inspired by the fact that my reality right now does not have to be my reality forever. And so I'm just curious about, are you, are you seeing a really good balance of both sides of the coins being amplified? Because I think both are important. It's a matter of validating what's happening, but then also um, being able to see a path out, which is why I said I wanted to shift and start talking about healing. Yes. No, I actually don't see, see the balance um, because we're just starting to have these conversations. Uh, I tell people all the time, Black people just started going to therapy in 2020. I, I had a private practice for 20 years. The majority of my clientele were white females. They were not Blacks. They were not African-American. And the comments that I would hear would be, I'm not telling her all my business. Like, I'm not, like, I'm Black, I'm not telling the Black therapist all my business or, you know, what happens in this house stays in this house. And, you know, therapy is for crazy people. Within 2020 happening and a lot of people realize like, well, you know what? I got a little crazy in me too. Like I might need to go sit down and talk to somebody. You've been in the house all day for three weeks, a month, two months. You really had some time to self-reflect. So the conversation around healing for Blacks and what that looks like is just starting. But I also see that the gap is not being closed because of the limited amount of Black therapists that we have. And that mm -hmm. takes me into, you know, talking about like the inequality and the lack of inclusion and diversity that we see, especially in the mental health profession, that you only have, I want to say 2% of your psychiatrists are Black. I think 4% of your psychologists are Black. I think that only 21% of social workers who are also can be mental health therapists 
are black. And I think for LPCs, that number is even lower. Like there are not a lot of black therapists that are available. Um, And we also see the systemic racism that is taking place, the barriers that are being put up for students who even want to practice getting into those programs. We just saw a big incidence with the social work um, board that actually does the testing. I forgot what it's called. ASWB, I think is the name of it. And how the number of Blacks that did not pass the test was alarming. And how the board's response was, well, that's the individual's response. And I'm like, no, it's not. Because a lot of those Black students went to the same institutions as their white counterparts who passed the test. So something is wrong if they're all getting the same information, they're all having the same experiences, but one group is passing and another group is not. And that takes me back to us having biased algorithms in the healthcare system. And that takes place a lot. And there's not a big conversation around that as well. So when we talk about healing, it's a a conversation that's going to be ongoing. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. So I want to let the audience know that we're going to be shifting momentarily to take your questions, your comments. We would love for you to contribute to today's podcast discussion. You can do so by raising your hand and I'll be glad to invite you to unmute yourself and I will spotlight you so that you can share your comments. Or again, if you're here more in an auditory observatory capacity and you just want to place your questions or comments into the chat, we will also make sure we're paying attention there to bring it into the discussion. So be thinking about your questions while I address address this, this um, next question for Dr. Carey. Um, so we talked about in, in the beginning that you founded the company, I Think Change. And I, I, I love the name, by the way. I love the emphasis on change. Why is it important for organizations to facilitate change using, again, research, data analysis? Let's talk about that. Well, most corporations are numbers driven. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, change is supposed to take place because of what the data is telling you. It should in that your data should be influencing the decisions that you are making. What we're seeing is that a lot of companies only focus on the numbers and they forget about the people. And so mm-hmm. that is where my company comes in because we're all behavioral scientists. And so we mm-hmm. look at the behaviors of your employees. That's really our focus. And we want to talk to not management. We want to talk to the frontline workers. We want to mm-hmm. talk to the entry level workers. What's their experience? What do they see as being the problems? Because those are truly your key problems because they are the individuals that are boots on the ground that are making it happen that leaders often ignore because a lot of them are going to be minorities and we possibly cannot know what the problem is. We we aren't that on that level of intelligence. And so they're often discarded and their experiences are negated. And so what we do is we go in and we give them a voice. And so, and we also do the quantitative as well. But when we put it together, it gives you a bigger picture that's very hard to ignore. And so I think that as companies look at data, part of that data needs to be the voices of their employees and not Mm -hmm. management. We hear from management all day, every day. Let's talk to the people that you walk by at the water cooler and you never speak to. 
and mm-hmm. you don't know what's going on with them. Those mm-hmm. are the stories that I want to, to capture and, and pick out the things and code and say, these are what the real issues are. Yeah, I love that. I love that there's um, a huge emphasis on the front line, what their perceptions, sentiments, experiences are. Um, I often share that where you sit in an organization determines what you see and what you see becomes your lens and your lens is what helps to inform how in which you make decisions, how in which you interact. And when you sit at that level, your experience often is vastly different. And so I so appreciate you emphasizing the need for us to center, again, the voices of the most marginalized, of those who are most directly impacted by what's happening in our organizations. So Kwabana, welcome. I see that your hand is raised. And so I'm going to invite you to unmute yourself and share. I'm adding you as a spotlight. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? Doing well. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Yazid, thank you so much for being here. I really enjoy enjoy enjoying your conversation, your knowledge, and your experiences. Um, speaking of experiences, my question for you is, and I know especially since your background is research, you, you've written nine books, which kudos to you. I I barely read nine books. No, I'm just kidding. But um, congratulations on that. Um, but my question for you is there was a there's a recently within the past probably six months, I was uh, listening to a DEI expert and they um, spoke about the value of elevating people's experience as valid DEI um, best practices and which it in his idea in that ideology, it, it kind of challenges you know, what you talk a lot about is research. And then uh, along with that, you also incorporate the the psychological space of the humanization of DEI, which supplements the the data. But I just would like to hear your perspective on the validity of using strictly personal experiences as um, leading tools for DEI even in large organizations, large corporations. And so how would, how did you, how do you take that general concept? Well, I would say this, A, it's whose general experience are, are you looking at? That's number one, because you could, you can say that and throw that out there, but then it becomes, well, exactly, are you looking at management's experience? Are you looking at middle manage experience? Or are you looking at the frontline workers experience? Because all of their experiences are going to be different. The lens in which they see DEI and problems within the organization is also going to be totally different. The next thing is you still have to look at policies. You have to look at procedures, which influences their experiences. So I I don't know. I would kind of tread lightly on we're just going to go on DEI strictly off of people's experiences, but we're not going to look at the policies. We're not going to look at procedures. We're not going to look at how people are hired into the into the company. Um, and again, that might not be someone's experience. That might be someone's mindset of, well, you know, I'm not going to hire her because she says she's a single parent and I just know she doesn't have experience. And so she's going to have to always leave early. And so then it becomes all of these assumptions. That's not your experience. 
that's your perception of someone that you haven't even allowed them to have an experience. And so then you don't hear from them. You can't get their experience because they were never hired into the organization to begin with. So you got to look at a lot of different factors when we start talking about DEI, because, you know, again, when we start talking about equity, what does that look like in some companies? When we're talking about inclusion, you know, what does inclusion look like? I remember one company that I actually was up in line to work with and they didn't, they used me to check a box was that their ideology of inclusion was to bring in workers from India and they couldn't understand why they didn't have any black workers. And I was like, Morgan State University is like a couple of miles away from your, your organization. You have an entire HBCU that you've never set foot on that campus and tapped into them. And I said, that's a hiring practice. Mm. That's a hiring practice. And so, again, when we talk about people's experience, Whose experience are you going to be looking at when you say that's going to influence your DEI? Thank I'm you. just that, saying. That, that, make, no, that makes absolute sense. Uh, and, and I was referring to, in particular, like DEI professionals in corporations um, and how that could influence the, the trajectory of an organization. On the Morgan State, great point. Wonderful institution. Uh, actually, if, for those who don't know, and as you talk about the, uh, the, a lot of times they use Indian, uh, descent, uh, hires for engineering. Morgan State is the only institution in the state that has a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering. So, uh, again, uh, my, I'm not a HBCU alum. My wife is, but I definitely support it. So thank you again. I'll relinquish the mic. You're welcome. <laughs> Awesome. Good to see you, Kwabana. Thanks so much for joining us today. So again, I just want to remind you, if you have some questions that you would like to bring or comments to the conversation, please feel free to raise your hand. I would love to be able to spotlight you to share um, in the interim while you're maybe thinking about perhaps what you want to contribute to the conversation. I do want to introduce another question, Dr. Carey. And this question is about um, change management and leadership development. Um, why are the two of those key to shifting work culture? Um, well, change starts with leadership. And I think when we start talking about the work culture, even though we're looking at our frontline workers, all of their work is being dictated to them by leadership. And so, again, we have to look at what is their mindset? What is their experiences? Who have they actually been around? I, I mean, unfortunately, when we look at corporate 500 companies, a lot of these leaders are white males who have gone to Ivy League schools. Their interactions with black and brown people has probably been limited. A lot of their experiences are going to be limited to what they see on TV, what they hear in, in the music industry. And so when you're talking about change management, a lot of times change management means that we have to come in and change their mindsets first. Leadership, the leadership mindset has to change. They also have to realize that you have to have the buy-in of your front-end workers 
before any change is going to take place because they're the ones that have to actually implement it. And so where I see the disconnect with the change management that takes place is that leadership never talks to those who are in those frontline worker positions. Mm -hmm. And then they come and say, well, this is what we need you to do differently. And frontline workers are saying that's not going to work. And they know it's not going to work because they are the ones that are doing it. And so then organizations struggle trying to realize, well, why can't we get change to take place? And they want to blame the frontline workers, but what they haven't done is included them in the conversation. That means that you need to have a mindset shift of how you perceive those individuals and what they bring to the table if you allow them to sit at the table. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And I see that Alfred shared into the chat. It should be exchange management. And so with that note, Alfred, I am going to bring you in. I would love to have you share some of your thoughts, your commentary. So you're spotlighted now. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dr. White. Uh, yeah, I put two comments in there, uh, uh, Dr. Yazid. Um, one was on imposter syndrome. I can't go a day without seeing a webinar notice on imposter syndrome. And what irks me is that many of these conversations don't take into account uh, racial trauma, uh, racial fatigue, a uh, thousand paper cuts of microaggressions, uh, and even the whole concept, who developed it and who was not in the equation when they were interviewing other women. Uh, could you speak to that? And then the other thought, if you could get to it, is that I see a lot of work being done about on around somatic, somatic therapy, you know, how we as people of color especially uh, hold that trauma within our bodies and all the other ripple effects that it has on our total health. I know they're too distinct, but they're kind of related. But yes. Your thoughts. Thank you. Yes. And so we, we do see imposter syndrome taking place, um, especially when it comes to people of color, because a lot of times we have been gaslighted so much in the workspace that you have been kind of programmed to believe that you're not on that level. And that has been done intentionally. That's not just someone who's just a narcissist doing what they do. A lot of that is done intentionally to keep you in your place. And we have to understand how capitalism works in this system, that you have to have the worker and then you have to have the person that benefits. And the person that benefits can't allow the worker to get on their level. So there has to be some manipulation that takes place. And so when you have the gaslighting that's taking place, that encourages the imposter syndrome that we often see, where it's just like, well, okay, am I really good enough? Like, so one thing that I do to defeat imposter syndrome is I'm going to research people. So when I come to the table, I already know what I'm bringing, what you're bringing, and I normally know I'm bringing more. And then I come in and, and there is no. So when you start with the gaslighting, I'm going to shut you down. I'm going to tell you this is what it is. I'm going to call you on what I see taking place. And then I'm going to set the tone for, for how the meeting is going to go or how the consultant is going to go. And so it's re I had to learn how to rec reclaim my voice and regain my power. And part of that is that do your due diligence, do your research, know who you're going into the room with. And I think a lot of times you will be pleasantly surprised to see that you're overqualified or that you're the most qualified person in the room. That's a good ego boost. If you need <laughs> that's a great ego boost. Right. Um, and 
as far as like us holding all of that trauma in, that is true. So I think recently the CDC this week, I'm thinking it's the CDC, said that physicians need to start screening for anxiety in, in patients that come mm-hmm. in. And as a, as a former mental health therapist, I cannot agree more. I worked with physicians that worked in like inner city areas and clients would often present in their office with heart palpitations, headache, fatigue, and they would run all these tests and the test would come back negative. And at some point, one doctor that I worked with, she realized that they all were having panic attacks, that they were depressed. It was anxiety. And so she was just like, do you take like Medicaid? And at that time I did. And she said, good. And next thing I knew, she flooded my private practice with clients And that was like my first influx of having black and brown clients that were experiencing and it was having to educate them on what anxiety was, what depression is, what are some things that you can do in your life, what are the stressors that you're facing, but they had carried that around for years, a lot of them it had been years, they had never talked to anyone and it had started to show up as as health problems and so Again, when we start thinking about the inequalities that take place in the healthcare industry, this is how it's impacting us. So, yeah, you, you know, I always say when I don't feel good, I'm going to the doctor. We're going to figure it out together. I'm not ready to die. So I'm just built a little different. But I know some people who just will, will not. And a lot of times is they just need to talk to someone. No, I love that. Thanks so much, Alfred. I so I so appreciate you being on and you sharing that commentary. Um, this is intriguing. It's intriguing to me. You can go to the doctor and get your blood pressure taken like we are used to, but then also, you know, maybe soon on the horizon, we'll be able to also have our anxiety checked too, right? I'm going to try to squeeze one more in. And so, Michael, I see your hand is up. I'm going to add you to the spotlight. Hi, my friend. Thanks for being here. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Nika. And also, thank you, Dr. Carey. Uh, Good to see you live now. So uh, yes, hi. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, a lot of what you you already know. A lot of what you say resonates with me, and I just wanted to add a little thing because uh, we talk about uh, Renee Brown. I think uh, Renee Brown also said that she's quite inspired by the work of Bell Hooks, something that is also been noticed by you. But one thing, like I've also really studied the work of Bell Hooks, and I think one important thing that she also talked about was like. The importance of critical thinking and when you think about critical thinking and when you apply it to what you just mentioned like if you would critically think then it also would not make sense to just take the work of Brandon Brown and just apply it to everyone um so yeah. that's why I think it's important also to, to stress that because like uh yeah a lot of things that are going on is basically like it would only make sense if you do not critically think and I think that's mm-hmm. an important point also to make that uh for instance like an example that I often give is like I live in the Netherlands you know in Europe and like I have a police station in my street as a black man, but as a black man, when I walk out the, out the door, then I'm not afraid that the police will do something to me. But if I was in America, the same black man, that would be totally different. And that's also critical thinking, like the context also matters. So the whole idea of just applying her work without any critical thinking, that doesn't make sense. And that's something that uh, it's interesting to notice that people sometimes negatively respond to you, right? Actually, what you said is just logical thinking. So uh, that's just something that I wanted to add. Thank you. Thank you. And yes, that is a, a very good point. I recently just had this um, 
I would say discussion on LinkedIn with someone who shared my article, but she shared it to tell people, oh, this is a great article. And then it was that but and she went with the but, you know, Brene Brown teaches, I feel that what Brene Brown is teaching me is how to be human. And I said, well, that's nice, but I don't understand how she's teaching people to be human when a majority of her research subjects are not black and brown people, that they're white people. And normally they're the white people that don't like the black and brown people because she located in Texas. I'm just keep it real. Y'all know what's going on in Texas, okay? It's good and crazy out there. It's a hot mess. And so she challenged me and she was like, well, this is on her website and these are her statistics. And she was like, it's, she does 22% of her participants were African-American women. And I'm like, 200 women? And you gonna tell me this is your perception of she's teaching us how to be human? No, ma'am. Like, I'm not buying this. Like, take that somewhere else. And also, Brene just put that on her website after she took a lot of slack for not incorporating black and brown people into her work, into like her workshops and everything that she does, the face of it has been white suburban housewives. That's really who her work is focused towards. And if a black woman or a brown woman can identify with that, that's great. But you still, as you said, we have to use some critical thinking. We have to look start looking at the work of people and say, does this truly reflect who I am? And a lot of people came to me and said, well, who else is out there? And I said, well, you might go to the source of Brene Brown's inspiration, which is Bell Hooks, the Black woman that didn't get all the credit for talking about being vulnerable and being courageous. But, you know, Black women are known for being trailblazers. But when you're a trailblazer, you usually are blazing a trail for somebody else that's going to get all the recognition. It's not going to be you. And so it's unfortunate that Bell Hooks died, like, at the crest of all of this taking place. But, yes, we have to critically look at the works of the who the media is putting in front of us and telling us these are the people that we need to listen to. We as black and brown people, it's our responsibility to say, but does this person represent me? Can I apply this to my daily life? And if the answer is no, don't try and force yourself into inside of a square hole and you, you, you a pig. Like, no, it's not going to work. You a round pig? No. Just go find somebody else. There's someone else out there. You're just going to have to do the research. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks so much, uh, Michael, for your question. And Dr. Carey, we are out of time, but I just want to thank you so much because um, I'm not sure if you've been following some of the commentary in the chat, but this was definitely a rich conversation that all of us were able to experience. And we cannot thank you enough for just sharing so much of your time. Um, we'd love to invite you back in the future. Um, so that is the end of today's Intentional Conversations podcast. If you found this to be useful, we hope that you will encourage others to catch the replay or the podcast version. And hopefully we'll see you all back here again next Friday at the same time. Thanks so much. Have a, have a safe and wonderful weekend. Bye-bye.